0: If you missed last week, we started a sermon series on the miracles of Jesus, and we are continuing with that sermon series this Sunday. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Before we read God's holy and errant word, let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so too does your word go out from your mouth and shall not return to you empty. We pray, therefore, that your word would go forth in power this day and would accomplish that which you purpose. Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way with us and in us. For we pray this through the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The word of the Lord from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Dearly beloved, hear the word of the Lord. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. Let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon They left everything and followed him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Dearly beloved, what we have this morning is a fish story. And we all know that fish stories are usually twisted into tall tales of titanic trout behemoth bass massive marlins and colossal crappie the fish was this big but this is no ordinary fish story ordinary fish stories don't present the fishermen as failures and this is exactly what Luke tells us about these fishermen in Luke 5. Simon Peter has been out fishing all night with his fishing partners, which included James and John, but to no avail. And now, as they stand dejected on the shores, cleaning their nets, certainly tired and probably a little cranky as well from their lack of success, Jesus comes along with a crowd following him. And he asks to use Simon Peter's boat that is sitting empty on the shore as a floating pulpit of sorts from which he can preach to the crowd. Simon Peter grants this request. There's actually a location just south of Capernaum which forms a bay that acts as a natural amphitheater where this event is believed by scholars to have occurred. So Jesus, sitting in the boat just offshore, could easily and effortlessly be heard by the masses. Anyhow, Simon Peter was probably happy to oblige Jesus' usage of his boat while he and his associates cleaned their equipment from a long night's work. After all, Simon Peter is perhaps returning the favor to Jesus, as it were for healing his mother-in-law, an event that is recorded just a few verses before in chapter 4. But then something unexpected happens. Jesus finishes teaching, and he instructs Simon Peter to take the boat to deeper waters and let down the nets. You see, it was fine when the teacher wanted to teach. But now Jesus has crossed the line. He is no longer staying in his own lane if you will. Now he's giving advice to the fishermen about their area of expertise. These fishermen have not requested this advice, and by all appearances, it is poor advice. The real fishermen knew that fishing in broad daylight in the heat of the day didn't present the right conditions for success. Those conditions had passed and moreover had been fruitless. So can you imagine, can you imagine how frustrating it must have been for Simon Peter, a fisherman, to be receiving advice on where to cast his nets from Jesus, a carpenter slash rabbi? It isn't as though Simon Peter is a novice fisherman. He isn't even a recreational fisherman who just fishes for sport. He is a professional fisherman. Fisherman who does this day in and day out, who fishes to make a living. And so I don't think we have to wonder what is going through Simon Peter's mind when Jesus asked him to put his nets back out for a catch. Perhaps many of us know how it feels to receive advice about our area of expertise from an outsider. If you don't, just get on social media. It's full of people who fancy themselves to be doctors and scientists and constitutional law experts and coaches and religious scholars. The list goes on and on and on. Granted, they have no degree or training to back up what they are saying, but they would love to fill you in on what you have devoted your life's work to and correct any misunderstandings you might have. And dearly beloved, it is no wonder this country is so divided. This passage is teaching us a lot of things, but one of them is not that we are to imitate Jesus in telling others how to do their jobs. Instead, Jesus speaks here with an authority that is his and his alone. And perhaps then in this age of social media, the church should hear the instruction that the apostle Paul gave to the church in Thessalonica saying, aspire to live a quiet life and to mind your own affairs. Nevertheless, we see a bit of Simon Peter's frustration here as he responds, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. It's as though he's saying, seriously, Jesus? We have literally nothing to show for a full night's work, and we aren't particularly interested at this point in more fruitless labor. And yet, We should recognize here that even though Simon Peter might have been frustrated, he does not act disrespectfully toward Jesus. He addresses Jesus as master. It's a title of respect. It's an acknowledgement of authority. And Simon Peter is perhaps granting Jesus the respect he deserves as a rabbi. And so Simon Peter continues, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And so not only does he address Jesus with respects, he obeys. At your word, he says, I will let down the nets. And what happens? Luke tells us that they catch so many fish that their nets begin to break. So they signal the other boat to come help them haul in the fish. But when that boat arrives, they find that there are so many fish that both their boats are sinking under the weight of the catch. Dearly beloved, this is a fish story, but there is no exaggeration needed for dramatic effect. In fact, there is no fabrication or falsehood in this story at all. It isn't to garner glory for the fishermen, but to give glory to the one to whom it is truly due. And Simon Peter's response to this miraculous catch says it all. Notice how his demeanor changes at this point. He falls at Jesus' feet confessing his sinfulness and no longer refers to Jesus as Master but as Lord. This is the same response we see from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he finds himself in the presence of God Almighty in the temple. Woe is me, for I am lost, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips among a people Of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. These are the words of a sinner who finds himself in the presence of a holy God. These are words spoken in reverent fear with the knowledge that sin is totally obliterated in the presence of holiness. Simon Peter then demonstrates to us that he no longer understands Jesus to merely be a great teacher or even a miracle worker. No, Jesus is more than that. Jesus is Lord. He is the one to whom this story is pointing. It isn't about the size of the fish or the number of fish at all. It's about the one who commands all creation at his word. So we don't want to miss the message of this miracle. And there are three lessons that I would like to highlight for us this morning. First, Jesus wants us to move from admiration of him to full submission to him. He wants us to move from admiration of him to full submission to him. Jesus doesn't just want to command our respect. He wants our worship. He doesn't just want our intellectual assent. He wants our full obedience. He wants our hearts as well as our heads. He doesn't just want our lip service. He wants our lives. And the interesting thing about Simon Peter here is that this isn't his first encounter with Jesus, as I've already noted. He's already watched Jesus perform a miracle. He clearly recognizes that Jesus is preaching and teaching as one with authority, and yet, and yet, even as Simon Peter had respect for Jesus, he had not put his faith in Jesus as Lord and become his disciple. This means that we can acknowledge a miracle and still miss what the miracle is actually pointing to. This is why Jesus frequently discourages folks from focusing too much on the miracle itself. It is also why there are instances in the Gospels where Jesus commands that a miracle not be divulged by those who have been recipients or witnesses of it. He knows that if we focus our entire attention on the miracle itself, if we become so amazed, so enthralled at what has occurred, then we miss who has caused it to occur and why he has caused it to occur. Jesus knows then it isn't hard for us to miss the meaning of the miracle. And what this also means is that just because we have witnessed or experienced the power of God in our lives, it doesn't mean that we have acknowledged the source of the power or bowed before Jesus as Lord. In fact, there are many who, like Simon Peter at the beginning of this story, who have tremendous respect for Jesus. They admire him as a wise teacher. They look to him as a moral leader. They might even acknowledge him to be some sort of healer or miracle worker, but they haven't entrusted their lives to him as their Lord and Savior. Dearly beloved, Jesus doesn't need students who do nothing more than study his teachings. He isn't looking for adherence to a moral code that he is bringing. He doesn't care to be venerated as a miracle worker. He is seeking believers who will put their full faith in him for his perfect life, his substitutionary sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, and his glorious ascension to the right hand of God where he reigns in power. He's looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth and for disciples who will lose themselves to gain him, who will joyfully give their lives to his service, obeying all that he has commanded because they know in it they will find life. The story is teaching us then that it isn't enough to approach Jesus simply with respect, admiration, or amazement. For one does not gain salvation in and through Christ by way of these things. The Apostle Paul tells us what salvation requires. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Salvation requires not just an external profession of Christ, but an internal acquisition of him as he truly is fully God. As long as Christ remains outside of us, his sacrificial death remains useless to us. So it's about truly believing in the depths of your soul that he is Lord and Savior and entrusting yourself into his care. And we see here a clear picture of Simon Peter recognizing who Jesus truly is, recognizing that he stands face to face with, with God. And in doing so, he is immediately confronted with his sin. He understands his unworthiness to be in the presence of holiness. It is a scary thing to stand before a holy God. And how many times in scripture do we see someone finding themselves before all God Almighty? And how often do we see them not fall down in fear? Dearly beloved, perhaps the casualness with which so many in the Western church approach God says something about the validity of their faith. It reveals a lack of consciousness of sin that is inevitably present in those who understand who God truly is. The reality is that we haven't truly placed our faith in Jesus Christ until we have trembled before God, acknowledged our brokenness, confessed and repented of our sin, and entrusted ourselves fully to him. So it is perhaps the case that the church of Jesus Christ, at least in the Western world, is filled with admirers of Jesus, but is lacking true followers of Jesus. May this not be true of us. But be encouraged, brothers and sisters. This passage presents us with a beautiful truth. It is a clear message of Jesus's response to sinners who confess their sin to him and acknowledge him as Lord. This is what the gospel proclaims. Jesus does not shun sinners. He invites them to come to him just as they are to find forgiveness and healing, Jesus truly is a friend of sinners, as Luke's gospel will tell us in just a few chapters. The first words out of Jesus's mouth are, do not be afraid, for Simon Peter is not met with the wrath of God, but with a gracious and loving Savior who will ultimately take the punishment of Simon Peter's sins upon himself on Calvary's cross. I hope that we don't fail to see the beauty of this moment here in Luke's gospel. It's the picture of a simple and broken man standing before a great and gracious Savior and Lord. And don't miss also that Jesus invites all, not only to come to find forgiveness, but to follow him and find true life. And this gets us to the second lesson I would like to highlight from this passage. Jesus calls us to leave everything behind to follow his will for our lives. Jesus calls us to leave everything behind to follow his will for our lives. This is what the one who has entrusted his or her her life to the Lord does. There is no true Christian who is not a follower of Jesus. Look at the response of not only Simon Peter, but also of James and John. Verse 11 says, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. We can so easily pass right over that verse. It can be read so nonchalantly, not stopping to allow the weight of what has been said to sink into our bones. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. They left everything. They left everything. Everything and followed him just like that. No hesitation, they give themselves entirely to him. For this is what happens when we are brought out of the dominion of darkness and come into the marvelous light of God's kingdom transformation, new direction with new priorities and purpose under a new king. Now this does not necessarily mean that we're supposed to run right out and quit our jobs and sell our homes and give away all of our material possessions. Although, it might. That certainly isn't excluded here. But what this passage is primarily teaching us is that we must go where Jesus calls us. There must be nothing holding us back from following him in faith. Nothing. So at the most basic level, Jesus calls every one of us to leave behind our idols, to leave behind our worldly attachments, to leave behind those commitments that assert authority over our lives and take priority over Jesus. And why would we expect any different? Why, having found forgiveness, would we return to a former life of sin? Why, having found new life, would we continue to live under that which brings death? But too often, the Christian faith isn't presented as leaving everything to follow Jesus. It's presented as simply adding Jesus to our lives. That isn't how it works, though. Jesus doesn't follow us. We follow him or he isn't our Lord and we aren't his disciples. And this means that there are implications in our everyday ordinary lives. It might not be as radical as giving away all of our possessions and changing our careers. He might be calling us to obey him right where he has us. I don't think that it is insignificant that Jesus addresses Simon Peter first within his career and calls Simon Peter to trust his voice within that career. In fact, This might be what finally opens Simon Peter's eyes to who Jesus truly is. Jesus is not speaking with authority over the area of his greatest weakness. He is speaking over his greatest strength, his expertise as a fisherman. So this is always an important area of self-examination for our faith. The question is, over what parts of our lives are we giving Jesus authority? Are we listening to our master's voice in every aspect of our lives, even in perhaps especially in the areas where we feel most competent? Or have we relegated Jesus to only one or two areas of our lives? Is Jesus reserved and restricted to Sundays, to times when we have felt needs, to times when we feel desperate? What scripture tells us is that true followers of Jesus know and obey his voice in every area of life. And this passage demonstrates this truth to us. Even before Simon Peter comes to full faith, there is a hint of trust in Jesus' authority when Simon Peter utters the words, At your word. His experience and reason might have told him that Jesus was, was wrong, and yet he obeyed. He trusted Jesus to some degree, even to the contrary of his experience. And he shows us here that God's word is not to be ignored, whether you agree with it or not. We shouldn't miss that he was rewarded for his obedience. He discovers that the word that called him to put down his nets is the very word that in the beginning created all things. It is the very same word that sustains the entire universe. And you see, Simon Peter learned a valuable lesson that day. If you can trust Jesus with something as simple as where to cast your net, then you can trust him with your life. But the unsettling reality is that we often have trouble trusting Jesus with the big things in life because we don't trust him with the little things. And we don't have to pretend that there aren't many times in life when experience and reason persuade us not to trust Jesus' voice. Jesus's voice doesn't always seem to be the reasonable one when we are establishing priorities for our daily living, when we have so many things to do that creating time and space to attend to our relationship with him seems to be pretty low on the list. Jesus's voice doesn't always seem to be the reasonable one when we are making business decisions, when honesty and fairness aren't what will get us ahead and help us to prosper. Jesus's voice doesn't always seem to be the reasonable one when confronted with our enemies. When we know that the only way to win is to fight fire with fire. But Jesus is calling us away from our worldly ambitions, our worldly pride, our need to be successful and to win. And he's calling us to much, much more. And this gets to the third and final thing that I would like to highlight that we learn from this passage. We are called to serve Christ in his kingdom. We are called to serve Christ in his kingdom. By the time we get to verse 10, we finally and fully see the message in the miracle. It is that we are invited to God's mission. To these fishermen who stand astonished at this miraculous catch, Jesus says, from now on, you will be catching men. And there it is. As one biblical scholar puts it here in this verse, event and symbol merge. The event signifies not only what the disciples are called to do, but who the disciples are as they do it. Isn't it amazing that one moment Simon Peter is recognizing his utter unworthiness to be in Christ's presence, and the next Jesus is calling him to go forth to bring others? into his presence. Don't miss who it is that Jesus is calling here. He isn't calling the best and brightest theological students. He isn't calling skilled thinkers or orators. He isn't calling the powerful and the popular. He isn't calling the morally perfect. He's calling sinful fishermen, regular folk like me and like you. None of us are worthy to experience the power and presence of God in Jesus Christ, are we? We are at once disqualified from service to God, but we are exactly the ones called to serve God. We are the ones who have been given the amazing gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and having been forgiven of our sins, we are immediately beckoned into Christ's service. As those blessed with this gift of grace in Jesus Christ, we are those who are sent out as God's people proclaiming the good news of salvation. In God's goodness, sinners are transformed into servants. Every Christian is given unique gifts and we are given differing ways to use these gifts to God's glory, but we all have the same general calling to be fishers of men. As Charles Spurgeon once said, and what is the life business of every Christian here? Is it not soul winning that we may glorify God by the bringing of others to the faith of Christ? Is the great object of our remaining here on earth. Otherwise, we should have been caught up to swell the harmony of the heavenly songs. It is expedient for many wandering sheep here below that we should tarry here until we have brought them home to the great shepherd and bishop of souls. It really is a shame then that mission and evangelism has become a program of the church in the Western world. As though mission and evangelism is something optional that you as a church member can choose to participate in or not. This isn't how scripture presents our calling to the world as those redeemed in Christ. It presents All of us as witnesses to the resurrected Lord Jesus, calling all the world to faith in him. What scripture wants us to understand is that God's church doesn't so much have a mission as much as God's mission has a church. Let me say that again. It isn't so much that God's church has a mission as much as God's mission has a church. So why is it that Christians in America seem far more focused these days on trying to win converts to a political party than they do trying to win souls to Christ's kingdom? Why is it that Christians are unashamed to get on social media and let folks know what they think about everything from politics to sports to public health, but are hesitant to boldly proclaim to our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our families, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Dearly beloved, we have been given the honor and the privilege of being fishers of men. It is high time that we get our nets out and cast them into the deep waters And fishing is not a one-time act. It requires devotion and perseverance day in and day out. A fisherman doesn't quit fishing because he has had a bad day and catches nothing. Nor does he retire because he gets one good haul. The same must be true of us. But regardless of success or failure, we recognize that we are but an instrument in the hand of God. We are to be faithful in putting down the net. That is what we are called to. God will do the rest. It is not in our power that men are caught for God's kingdom. It is God who brings the harvest. He will use our gifts as well as our weaknesses to do this. But all the glory is his. And we are not ignorant that there is personal risk involved in putting down the net of the gospel. But as Charles Spurgeon notes, a fisherman must go forth in rough weathers and at all hazards, For if he should only fish in calm sea, he may often starve. Therefore, whether someone receive the word with pleasure or reject it with anger and wrath, we must be ready to imperil reputation and risk comfort. Indeed, we must hate our own life also, or we are not worthy of the heavenly calling. Dearly beloved, it's my prayer that we would be worthy of our heavenly calling. That even as we recognize our unworthiness to be in his presence, we would accept our calling as his servants to go into all the earth, proclaiming his glorious gospel. So come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Find in him forgiveness of sins and newness of life and leave behind the old life and follow after him, obeying his word, serving his purposes for his glory and find joy in the honor of being made his servant. To God be the glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that in Jesus Christ, a new and living way has been opened into your holy presence. We thank you that by his blood shed for us, we are washed clean of our sins that we stand before you as those redeemed in Christ, justified in your sight. And Lord, we give you thanks. This is not all, Lord, but you claim us as your own and you send us out as your people. Lord, help us. Help us to faithfully obey. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Scots Confession. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? We confess and acknowledge one God alone.